In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. What I heard over and over again from the folks I interviewed was, I am a good man, right? And so if you really are a good man, or you really are a good person, then get really clear on don't you want to be contributing in a way that is making the playing field safe, healthy, balanced for all of us? And if you know that it's not balanced, it's you're, something you're saying is hurting someone's feelings or worse, don't you want to participate in a better way? I hope yes. That's Cleo Stiller, who's had 75 really interesting conversations with men about the Me Too movement. And she's written an interesting book about it called Modern Manhood. Times are changing now in big ways and small in how men and women relate to each other as they invent new ways to do it. And Cleo Stiller has taken a frank look at how it's going. Cleo, this is great to have you on the show. Thank you for coming in. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, this is a special subject because it's really it's really current in everybody's mind. Mm. Everybody. And you've done an interesting thing with this book you've written, which is called Conversations About the Complicated World of Being a Good Man Today. Really the aftershocks of the the Me Too movement, right? Mm. And But what's interesting about it to me is you didn't write a book telling men how to behave, I don't think. No. (laughs) I would not dare. And on the contrary, you wrote a book where you gave 75 men a chance to express themselves on the subject. Who were these people? Why, did, why are they in the book? So uh, my background is as a national news reporter. I worked for Univision's cable network Fusion for five years before that Bloomberg. Um, and I hosted a national news show for Univision called Sex Right Now with Cleo Stiller. I chose the title, even though it was quite provocative. Um, it was a, I believe, intellectually rigorous uh, television show that offered millennials, Gen Xers, and anyone watching it um, insight into how technology and shifting social attitudes are are changing the ways that we're relating, finding each other, staying connected in sort of unprecedented ways. So we're hosting this show, right? Um, And the audience is split about 60% male, 40% female. 
And uh, rewind to 2017. It's when the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke and Me Too hit the mainstream. A lot of men who watched my show started writing into me on social media, are you going to do a season about this? Because Mm. I have a lot to say about what's happening right now, but I'm afraid to say anything because I don't want to get in trouble. It's all really confusing. And then inevitably, this sort of comment um, would then be followed by a question, um, something like, I'm a single man, and I'm terrified to approach women right now. I feel like everything I was raised to do is now considered creepy. Or I'm a new parent, and I've got a young son, and I feel like I'm reckoning with my own behavior. How am I supposed to raise a good son when I don't even know what a good man is today? I also heard from a lot of people with a lot of hiring power, a lot of men with hiring power. Listen, I wouldn't cop to this in real life, but to be totally honest with everything going on, I don't want to hire women. I don't want to mentor my female staff. This is the the most discouraging outcome mm. that I've I've heard. Yeah. In in the year or two since the movement started, it it's such a wonderful thing that women are finally saying no. Yes. You're not going to do it, and you're not going to keep me quiet about it if you do do it. But one of the outcomes has been that men who might even otherwise be allies are now saying, I'm not going to hire women, I'm not going to mentor women, I'm not going to be having business meetings at the dinner table with them in restaurants. Yes. There's this weird thing where people don't know what to say. They don't know what's safe to say. I read an article by uh, a woman who was describing an encounter she had where there was one of her students, I think, who showed up dressed unusually well for for some event. She hadn't seen her look look like that. And she said, you look great in that dress or something like Mm. that. And there was a male colleague standing there, and she said, doesn't she? And he felt paralyzed. He didn't, and and other people, when they heard the story, said, that's right, he would be damned if he didn't, damned if he didn't. Mm, I'm mm, not sure that's true. Mm, I mean, it's if, especially if a woman initiates the compliment, you, it's not hard to say, I agree, <laughs> or you, you said it, or... Something positive. You don't have to climb into a hole. But there is this fear of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, being accused of the wrong Mm. thing. And fear of looking stupid, Mm. fear of being rejected, fear of a false accusation. Because what's really coming up over and over again from folks, right, is this idea of like, I thought I was a good guy. Mm. What the hell is going on? It's like the world is tipped upside down. I, you know, what, can I not open a door for a person anymore? Mm. Can I not compliment you on a dress? Can I not take my coworkers out for drinks now? It seems to me almost all of those things can be done with the right intention, the right respect for the other person. I mean, if I lunge for a door to open it and I see... My wife, for instance, has already got it open. Uh, I'm I'm fine with that. I, it's one of the great <laughs> one of the great things about the feminist movement is I open fewer doors now. Mm. 
Okay, well, let me, I'm just, you know, Alan, I'm going to push back on you a little bit about that. Yeah, go so ahead. what I offer to folks and the door situation, I can't, I can't tell you how many times that came up in interviews. Really? Yeah. So let's talk about the door, right? Some, what I heard over and over again is it's like, I was raised a good man holds the door open for the woman coming behind him. But now I'm kind of thinking, why would I hold, if we're all equal, why am I holding the door for you? And if I do hold the door for you, are you going to yell at me? Because there are, people have stories about women yelling at someone for holding the door <laughs> open for them. So here's what I offer. And yeah. this is pretty much the, ta- the overarching takeaway of the book in general. This question of does a good man hold a door for the woman coming up behind him or what does a good woman do? That, I think, is really a distraction to the question at hand, which is forget all of that. Forget the gender roles. What does a good person do? Mm -hmm. Does a good person hold the door for the person coming up behind them? Mm -hmm. I think yes. I think so, too. I hold the door open for men as well as women if I'm there first. But, you know, this is, reminds me, this is so funny. Forty years ago, I was uh, trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed mm. and very vocal, a very vocal feminist. And uh, I was being interviewed on television by a talk show guy. He said, you, you don't hold the door open for your wife? I said, well, yeah, if she's carrying something really heavy. <laughs> I got, yeah, I got a okay. huge laugh from that because they're thinking, the door, what about the heavy thing she's carrying? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in general, I find um, one of the things that's causing the fear right now is this feeling of disempowerment. And people are looking to other people to just tell me what to do, right? I heard this a lot as well. Like, um, you know, I asked men, what do you think of the Me Too movement? And I heard responses ran the gamut, of course. But the major- the theme that kept coming up a lot was, in the beginning, I was in favor for it, you know, with the Harvey Weinstein and the Bill Cosby stories. Of course, mm-hmm. those men should not be in power. But then it got out of control. Now it's gone too far. Like, I'm glad, you know, women had their time to say their truth. But enough of that. Let's move forward. You know, if there's something I got to do, just tell me what to do and let's move on. <laughs> they want to fix it yeah, and just yeah. get it over with, right? That's one of the problems with all kinds of communication for mm. me is you can't just say, here are three tips, and from now on you'll be okay. You really have to somehow transform yourself or get help getting transformed so that you think about the other person all the time. Yes. Well, and your audience can't see me, but I'm nodding enthusiastically because I'm sure when you say that to someone, they'll push back on you and say, that's a lot of work. Oh, really? Did they say that to you? (laughs) Yeah, I heard that a lot. You know, it's like things were simple before. Now they're very complicated. It's easier to break, I think, you know, and what we try and do in this book, right, is separate each chapter into a different area of your personal life. So there's dating, work, parenting, friendship, because these conversations are infiltrating every space of our Mm. life. And it's impacting it in different ways, right? So every chapter, we try and answer a question that had been asked to me multiple times, right? Mm -hmm. So these recurring questions that are on 
everyone in our country's mind. And you seem to start with a personal experience and that it, a man exactly. has had. Exactly. So we lead with a story from a man. And every single one of those stories, when, when it, word got out that I was writing this book, those people came to me. So they wanted to share these stories, mm. right? And I heard this a lot like, thank you for writing this book. I have been wanting to get this off my chest mm. for so long. And then they would share a story and I had to really um, become extremely empathetic. You really listened. I was impressed how empathic you, you were because there was one story by a guy who was, I think his name was Alejandro. Mm, mm. And he had what could be described as a really frustrating experience mm. and he didn't know what to do. Mm. And you, you told his story in a way that reflected your understanding of what he must have been going through. Yes. And actually, he's a great case to bring up. So Alejandro um, is in his mid-40s. I've changed his name and obscured some identifying detail. Mm -hmm. um, but he's in his mid-40s. He uh, created a company that does uh, data analytics for me um massive media companies and his company got acquired so he has a lot of uh stake in the company's future he's worked very hard on this and he's pretty high up at this company at a certain point he got called by the ceo to grab coffee off-site totally fine so he goes there and meets with the ceo when he gets there the head of hr is there Never a good sign. <laughs> so he sits down and uh, proceeds to uh, be told by the HR that he is receiving his first and final warning that he has been dinged with two separate verbal sexual harassment with innuendo um, files, basically, incidents. And these are, this is being written up. It's going in his permanent file. And one more mistake like this, and he's out. And what did they tell him he did? And they would not tell him what he did. <laughs> That's the frustrating thing. <laughs> yeah. Part. So this is, and, and here's, and this is why I, like, listen, I got, there are more stories in this chapter that are so black and white where you hear them and you think, come on, man. Come on. But this Alejandro story is very gray, and it's why I led the chapter with it, because the HR team would not tell him what he had done. They would not tell him who he had offended, citing protection for the person he had yeah, offended, yeah. which is understandable. Sure. But they also would not give him any training. So he's terrified. He doesn't know what he did. He got his first and final warning in the same time. And one more thing, and his whole career— is, and his stake in the company stake in the would company disappear. And it's interesting. It's a, it, it's a, a very complicated scene because, for instance, telling him the name of the woman who filed the complaint would put perhaps her in jeopardy. They might have had an, another reason not to say what he said because that might identify her as well. Exactly. So— you know, from an HR perspective, I think everyone can agree that this was botched, but— How could they have improved it? So it's a complicated time because things are not black and white, and what we're dealing with in work situations in particular is hard because people want rules, right? Mm. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. And companies 
companies need to get ahead of the game and put programs and policies in place that protect their employees from as many gray situations as possible. For example, in a situation like this, uh, Alejandro really should have been trained, right? Like given um, some kind of experience that he could have had afterwards where they're giving him sensitivity training around whatever he has said. Or they could give him a range of training so he doesn't know which one applied to the... (laughs) To the, what he said to the woman. There is curriculum being developed that sort of help folks um, so that companies are doing the dirty work so employees don't have to step in it, so to say, right? <laughs> yes. But that being said, I will tell you about um, Alejandro the person uh, was difficult to interview. And, oh, oh, tell me about and that. Was, and made a lot of stipulations that were unusual. So I did not end up including in full what Alejandro told me because he was worried that some of his story would help identify him. And I really did want to include more, but I put on my empathy cap and really saw this from his perspective where he was coming to me hoping, well, first of all, he wanted to get the story off of his chest, and he said that several times. But also, he was hoping... He felt, and this comes up in the book, he was raised by a single mom. He feels that he really values women and and that his situation in particular is a great example that we all discuss because in his mind, it's turning good men like him off of helping and supporting women in the workplace. If that's true to any extent or to any appreciable extent, that's not a good thing. It's a terrible thing. So what I offer is a little bit of historical context on the workplace because I think that um, there is this feeling that everything was fine before and now it's crazy and we should just go back to the way it was. Yeah, that's not a good starting point. That's not a great—and that's not accurate, right? So the way that the workplace, the corporate work setting in America was first developed, it was never made for women to begin with, right? It was made for men. And then— when men went to war, then women did join the workforce. Mm-hmm. Then they came back. And in at least corporate settings, women were originally in posi- support positions for men. So that's kind of how the work American corporate workspace developed. And so a lot of the kind of like, quote unquote, locker room talk that is is how we bond, is how many men in the workspace bond. Um, this idea of, you know, drinks after work, drinks far away from the office, stuff on the weekends. This is developed originally in the context of a single gender experience when one gender has a lot more power than the other. Mm. And we never corrected for that. We never corrected for that. And we've kind of been fumbling our way through for the last couple decades. What I will offer is that it's going to take a little bit of time and, of course, thinking and of fumbling and it's uncomfortable and not as fun, but it's work. And you probably should watch words that come out of your mouth at work. If you're used to kind of just lobbing things off without thinking about the repercussions in the professional setting, it might be time for a little bit of a upgrade. And I can imagine that it must feel um, disruptive and inconvenient, surprising, if you've been able to say what you wanted to say to a woman or in front of a woman, and now 
you're required to think about the effect it might have on that person before you say it. You think, it's easy to think, well, what's this? Why do I have to go to this extra trouble? (laughs) Yes. What I heard over and over again from the folks I interviewed was, I am a good man, Hmm. right? And so if you really are a good man or you really are a good person, then get really clear on don't you want to be contributing in a way that is making the playing field safe, healthy, balanced for all of us? And if you know that it's not balanced, it's your, something you're saying is hurting someone's feelings or worse, don't you want to participate in a better way? I hope yes. So what does it mean to be a good man, especially if we're pretty sure we already are one? Cleo reflects on that right after this. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Cleo Stiller. You know, the interesting thing is, I mean, you remind me of a, of a thought I had when I was thinking about your title, where you talk about a good man, to be a good man. The book really concerns itself with being a good man with regard to the women that you come in contact with. But the funny thing is, I think, if you learn to deal with the women in your life in a cooperative, respectful way, it makes you a better person and a better man dealing with other men. Well, and we have a whole f- chapter on friendship because that that's huge, actually. Um, one thing that we talk about in fr- so I'll tell you, the friendship chapter is kind of led by a sentiment that came up a lot, which was, all right, we've all got this friend, you know, who says stuff that they shouldn't say, a little sexist, a little racist, and we used to let them get away with it, but with everything going on, it just feels like we shouldn't, I got to put my foot down, but I don't want to lose the friend, so what do I do? And um, of course, that the question there is really like, how do I call my friend out for locker room talk? Um, and then the question under that is, why do men... Use locker room talk to bond. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever heard locker room talk. I, 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 really? I, I keep hearing about it. You've n- Oh, really? You know, I haven't spent much time in locker room. <laughs> well, it doesn't but, exist uh, yeah. out in 
in merely in locker rooms, it turns out. Yeah, I know. I but I, I maybe it's the people I know. I don't like give give me the flavor and example of the kind of talk you mean. Okay, so well, and here here's how it happens. So we know now from we research. I interviewed a woman named Dr. Niobe Way who's been researching adolescent boys for over thirty years, and she talks about how. When little girls and little boys are very, very young, they form friendship bonds in the same exact way. They're hugging their friends, they're kissing their friends, they're telling their friends everything. They're very, very emotionally and physically close. And then, quite early, young boys get separated, and it's they get told, you know, don't touch your friend like that, don't hug mm. your friend, don't kiss your friend, you're on your own, like, you don't need anyone, you're on your own, only girls hug their friends, kiss their friends, need their friends like that. Mm. And that's messaging that boys get very, very early and very, very often. So she also talks about, um, you know, this just kind of trial that she does when boys hit high school, she'll talk to them as, you know, leaving eighth grade, entering ninth grade, right? She'll ask them, who's your best friend? And they can point to their best friend immediately and she'll ask them, what do you guys talk about? And like, they talk about everything. They talk about their divorce, their parents' divorce, their, you know, relationships with their siblings, their the stress that they're having with teachers and school and grades and girls. And then she checks in with these same boys every year and asks them that question again. And as they move through high school, that bond, that closeness, starts to dissolve. So by the time that they hit their senior year, like that best friend that they were super close with, now they're buds, and they talk about sports or the weather, but they're not really having that really those deep emotional conversations mm. that women are often having through their entire lives. So the question of why do men use locker room talk to bond is because we as a society have taught them that that kind of surface level talk, that's their, that's their capital. That's their main communication mode. And so when you take away, right, so like I interviewed some men, um, like for example, um, one interview that came up was, you know, in a law firm, one associate was showing another associate porn, um, and the guy I was interviewing said, like, that makes me really uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to see that in the workplace. I don't want this guy showing me that. Um, but I'm afraid, like, I don't know how to tell him no without looking like a quote unquote pussy. Right. Mm. Or, um, you know, so what's underlying that behavior, though, of the other guy showing the first porn He's probably just looking to bond, right? He just wants to build that relationship. And <laughs> That's a funny image. <laughs> one of the few ways that we've made it okay for men to have close closeness is, you know, I mean, well, you would know, well, you are really a special communicator, Alan. So, um, but, you know, there's cars, commutes to work, weather, sports, yeah. surface porn. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I just want to, I wanted to, I, that's making me think of this idea that we talk about in Modern Manhood um, that many men who have read the book responded to. Um, and having covered, you know, gender and sexuality conversations for a long time, it surprised me that this surprised them. 
So there is a concept in um, men's health theorist circles. It's called the man box. The qualities of the man box are along the lines of doesn't ask for help, stoic, uh, does not express emotion unless anger, um, does not need anyone or anything, is always right, is a leader, takes risks, um, sees, is not gay, Mm. um, is not weak, um, you know, sees women as less than and mostly in terms of sexual You you remind me of when I was a young actor and I had an agent who was a woman who said to me about another man, he's the kind of man who likes a strong woman, meaning that he wasn't a real man. <sighs> and I thought, I didn't say anything. I didn't, they didn't challenge her, but I was, and I was a kid. I was in my 20s. And I thought, I like a strong, strong woman. woman. Okay. So <laughs> I, what, what, why would I waste my time with a, <laughs> with weak, a weak woman? woman. I, 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 yes. So, okay. So here's the interesting thing about the man box, right? There is this perception generally that people had about so I interviewed men that range in age from 62 to 18. And there was a general thought that the younger folks would be more progressive and more open to these new ideas than the older folks. And I did not find that to be true. Hmm. And here I think is why. Because this idea of the man box, whether you fit within that box or not, that is hardly new. And I interviewed a lot of men in their 60s and 50s and 40s who were saying, listen, I don't have the terminology that y'all are using, but I never felt like a quote-unquote man. That, that identity never worked for me. Like, I was shy or I was introverted um, or I was sensitive. And that, you know, I had a lot of shame around that because my father, to- you know, told me to man up. But this feeling of not fitting in that box, that's that's not new. And that impacts so many of us. And again, it was partly why reporting this book was really heart-opening for me because I see there's a long history of pain and isolation um, happening. And I just, you know, to offer this conversation about, so what do we do from here? Um, I do really think that one of the beautiful opportunities we have is to people are voicing their vulnerability um, in ways and at a scale that we previously haven't seen before. And if we listen to these stories and also take time to reflect on our own behavior and really think about okay, this thing that I do that I always did because that's what my dad told me to do, do I want to bring that forward? Does that feel good? Does that hurt other people? If not, leave that behind, Mm. you know? When you were talking about feeling like a man, that interested me because decades ago I was— reading Ms. Magazine, writing for Ms. Magazine. Mm. Very often there would be uh, an article talking about asking you what makes you feel like a man. Mm. Nothing makes me feel like a man. Does anything make you feel like a woman? 
after after you know like the job that I have, you I can never answer that in a way that's st- straightforward. And I think about that all the time. You know, why do I personally put on makeup? What does that mean to me? What does that signal to the world? Right? Um, I I am quite grateful to have written this book. I can say actually because it sort of helped me step back from expectations that society, the world, puts on me because of how I look Mm -hmm. um, and really think, if that doesn't fit for me, if that doesn't work for me, it doesn't feel authentic, I'm 33, so probably a good time for me to just not do that anymore, right? Um, So there isn't any behavior that you do that if you're not allowed to do it or you don't aren't engaged in it, it doesn't make you feel like you're not being a woman or something. You're, you, you, if you don't get to do that, then you're denied being a woman or so, or, or something like that. Well, I've thought a lot about. I mean, I think about these things a, a lot. And actually, I end the book talking about my own experiences uh, with quote unquote Me Too um, incidents and. One was that I worked in an investment firm straight out of college for four and a half years. And um, I had a boss at that time explain to me uh, the concept of depreciating value um, in terms of how men have appreciating value because as they get older, they make more money and they have more power, which makes them more valuable. Whereas women, and then he pointed to me, like myself, had depreciating value because <laughs> because I would get older and uglier and fatter. <laughs> and he drew the graph for me. And he was like, you know, he thought— And this was an ugly old fat guy. Right? <laughs> He's like, what are you, 22? Yeah, you're, you're, you're on your way down already. And that's, that's, and I guess that made him feel like a man. Yeah. <laughs> so that probably made him feel like a man. That made me feel terrible. Well, on that, else, that's a yeah. good, that's a good Me Too mo- movement moment. But you were twenty two. I was talking 20, to a yeah. guy who was more powerful than you. I well, and that was my first job out of college, so I thought that was normal. Mm. Um, but you know, when turned I turned out it was it, and it was <laughs> <laughs> normal. Um, but the CEO of that firm has has resigned amid allegations of misconduct, and. Um, Misconduct with somebody of high value, no doubt. Right, of a pre- one can only imagine where he <laughs> got that person in in their yeah chart. Yeah, along the line yeah. of depreciation. Oh right, uh, what a world! But um, additionally, I I also told a story of when I was I, you know, a jun- more junior reporter, um, and I I met with an executive producer of a big show on my network. Um, he was in town, asked if I wanted to grab a drink while he was in town to discuss an international assignment, which would have been my first international assignment. And I jumped at the chance um, and met him for a drink. And we talked about the story and I thought I was going to get it. And I was thrilled. Um, and then he kissed me and I was shocked. Uh, I'm shocked. Shocked. I was well, shocked. You, you, were, you were in a restaurant? We were at the bar. Um, and at, he just leaned in. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just, I got a little awkward and I was like, oh, whoa, bleh. Uh, he invited me up to his room. I said, absolutely not. Um, and I hightailed it out of there. And I waited a couple of days for things to blow over. And then I sent a follow-up email as if nothing had happened. Hey, just checking in about Japan. Do you still want to do the story? And I never heard back. 
See, that's that's to me the most depressing news that's coming out over and over again. Yeah, that's that you, ubiquitous. I make an advance on you. You turn me down. I don't just take it as a turn down the way I would in business. Yeah. In business, I try to sell you something you're not buying. Okay, I'll, I'll sell to somebody else. Yeah. Now, you either cave in to me or I fire you or end your career. And here's what I will say. I'm not, I'm not saying what that person did was okay. It's not. But I am almost certain that that person does not think of that night as how he impact, could possibly have impacted the future of my career. But he was able to get upset that you turned him down. Right. And just, but, and, but so what I'm saying is these incidents are very prevalent. We know from the stories this happens all the time. Like for me, I don't even consider myself, um, you know, I wasn't consciously, when Me Too happened, I didn't think, oh, I have a voice to contribute to that until I started realizing, mm. oh, back to back, all of my employment situations have had incidents like this, right? And so when people hear these stories, I offer to them, instead of getting really defensive, um, because we can't move forward if people just clam up and get defensive, but if you were... Are you talking about the men or the women? Both. Huh. But... Um, get defensive in what way? Well, I would talk... Oh, you mean the men getting defensive yeah, if, about being turned down? Right. Yeah. Before you have that instinct, I offer, you know, what's done has been done, okay, but going forward really think about how your behavior is impacting others. And that's the takeaway of this whole book because um, what Me Too is doing is kind of throwing a wrench in in business as usual, right? And some people are, wait, this happened all the time? This was such a mass scale problem? Yes. <laughs> yes. <right. laughs> yes. <laughs> There is this problem that I hear women talking about, and this is women of various ages, that the punishment doesn't always fit the crime. Mm. And it's very hard to expect it to because this is not legislation. Mm. This is a movement. Mm. Mm. And in a movement, there is no formal organization, and you can't expect there to be. This is the spearhead of a new direction led by brave people, but sometimes somebody will do something very minor and lose his or her, his in this case, his entire career. Mm. And other people do something really bad and because they have the money to defend themselves can get away with it. Yeah. Well... What 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 do you see as, as is that, is that going to stay that way or there, is something going to make that better or shouldn't anybody worry about it? So um, in the book, Modern Manhood, we deal exclusively in gray areas. There was nothing in the book that we brought up that um, there is a law about really that will get you locked up or that is violent. So I do want to I want to preface that by saying um, acts of violence are not what I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. The reason I focus. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not either, except yeah. that. Except that the person who does an act of violence to get the same or lesser punishment mm. than someone who makes 
an off-color joke. Right. An off-color, that's that. There's something that doesn't seem helpful about that to the movement. Yeah. Because the movement then gets blamed for inconsistency and yeah. wild swings. So I have a couple of things come to mind when when I hear that, and I I will actually say that I heard from. Women um, in their 50s and 60s surprised me. They seemed to, um, like, for example, this one woman in her um, mid-60s said to me, listen, you know, I can tell that you don't take any crap, but I'll just say you guys don't know how lucky you have it. Back in my day, every boss I had tried to put his hand up my skirt. Yeah, I've heard that too from from women of, uh, of, of that age. I also have a good friend who's in her 80s who says, so let the men get hurt for a while. Mm. <laughs> ah, well, I, have, I don't want anyone to get hurt. And some people, very understandably, are not, wanting to come like from a place of compassion because they've been hurt for so long yeah i understand that and that's why send them to me (laughs) (laughs) i i can come from that place of understanding and compassion um and if you can you should because i i do like i said where i see it as a sort of unprecedented moment of having people's ears and interest and awareness that were not before well, this has been fun. We I, we yeah. always end our show with seven quick questions. You mind? Oh I? my gosh! Oh then, yes. What do you wish you really understood? Oh my gosh! Um, how I really wish I understood how to have a quiet mind. Oh, your mind is very active, huh? It's loud. Talking to you all the time. Ah, oh, so loud. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Ooh, you know, I'm pretty blunt about it. I'm a reporter. So I've, I'll, <laughs> I'll just say, well, according to X, Y, and Z, and I have this right here, that's, that's not what the facts show. You must have a big notebook because <laughs> you're going to have a lot of people getting their facts wrong during the, the usual day. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Alan, how much time do you have? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, strangest question. Yeah, I mean, like, what what did my parents do so wrong that turned me out the way I was? What? <laughs> Sometimes the Internet can be a cruel place, you know? I, oh, God. Yeah. All right. Uh, how, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, my gosh. Oh, okay. Actually, I do have, I have advice on this. Okay, if you get a compulsive talker, wait till they make a, even the slightest joke and then laugh like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so amazing. That reminds me of the time. And then you just jump right in there and you redirect the conversation. Sometimes I don't wait for the joke. I just, <laughs> I stop them right in the middle. You know what that reminds me of? You really put this thought in my head. Oh my, I think you said that exact phrase to me. I think I did. <laughs> But it wasn't because you were compulsively talking. It was because you really did put a thought in my head. Okay. I swear to God. (laughs) Is he lying to me? (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, How do you—oh, okay, you're at a dinner table, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? You know what? 
okay, it's not that I have a line. I don't have a prepackaged line to tell you, but be genuinely curious. You know, if you're sitting next to someone you don't know, I think mm-hmm. our inclination is to wait to figure out when you can say something in a conversation. <laughs> but if you're genuinely curious about something about this person, that's all you need. Good. Sounds good to me. What what gives you confidence? Um, what gives me confidence? Um... At this point, I think I used to be very unsure of myself, and I felt like every good thing I did, that was only as good as I was. Mm. Um, mm. So when you didn't do such good things, you felt less good about yourself? You no, it was just that I always thought it was a one-off, right? Everything, oh, every oh, achievement I, I had was just a one-off. And <laughs> yeah. it, the whole... And you're starting from scratch again. Exactly. The house could crumble at any moment. So I would say that at this point, what gives me confidence, and I have so much gratitude to this, is that I, at some point, maybe even within the past couple of years, started to see, oh, no, the... These things have, you've kind of accrued a good set here. You know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, That's great. Yeah. Last question. What book changed your life? And it's no fair if you say modern manhood. I know. God, it really did change my life, though. Um, What book changed my life? The Nine. The Nine. What's The Nine? I don't know Jeffrey Tubin's. Oh, oh yes, the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Why did that change your life? That changed my life because I think that uh, it really woke me up to the power of the courts um, Mm. in a way that I previously just had not taken full stock of. Um, And I think that given the last five years— that was a really important lesson to learn. I've enjoyed talking with you so much, Cleo. Thank you. Oh, Thanks thank for a you really so interesting conversation. Thank Thanks you. for coming in. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Cleo Stiller's recent book is Modern Manhood, Conversations About the Complicated World of Being a Man Today. It debuted at number one on Amazon's new releases. Her book is based on the stories of the many men out there who are trying to reconcile what it means to be a good man in the Me Too movement. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the amazing and wonderful Betty White. We talk just a few days after her 98th birthday. You are so skilled at creating this character that the world loves you for. And you're super sweet, and yet you're saucy and spicy saucy. I don't think I'm spicy. (laughs) I think that's a lot of crap. (laughs) I'm a dirty old broad, is Betty White speaks her mind and reveals the secret of her longevity next time on Clear and Vivid.